I wanted to follow on. Um, th- this series has been so uh, challenging to me, and uh, I- I've really enjoyed it. <laughs> I've enjoyed hearing um, different people come and share uh, some of their own perspectives from the Bible about how we establish this healthy root system. But I wanted to get really practical um, with us this morning. Um, San did an amazing job um, last week talking about the power of the tongue and and really addressing the, the heart issue of how we, uh, in, in this journey of maturity, deal with what's going on inside and therefore deal with what comes out of our mouths. And, uh, and I, I just thought he did such a phenomenal job. And the week before that, I think I did a phenomenal job uh, at, uh, at talking through boundaries. And uh, yes, thank you. <laughs> um, and actually, I wanted to springboard really off the back of those two weeks to get really practical with you. And I want, I've entitled this message, When My World Meets Your World. Uh, so if you are an avid note taker, feel free to write that down. Everything I'm about to practically tell you this morning, I hope will springboard off that. But ultimately, if you remember, we talked through boundaries last week, uh, a couple of weeks ago, and we talked about how that there is a landscape, there's a, there's a garden of my life, and I'm responsible for what, uh, what goes on in here. I'm responsible for what I nurture as a root system. I'm responsible for the fruit of my life. And we talked quite clearly about um, three key aspects of what grows in my garden, what I'm responsible for. Can anyone remember what those three things were? Pop quiz. Feelings. Very good. Attitudes. Two of you got that one. Great. And finally, you guys are super encouraging with your responses this morning. This is going to be a good morning. You are stoked to be here, I can tell. Um, Yeah, we talked about feelings, attitudes, and choices. And we talked very much about how um, it's our responsibility, this key word of maturity and responsibility in terms of what I produce in the landscape of my life. And what I want to focus in on today is exactly the same thing at some level, but the recognition that in our lives, we all have gardens that have feelings, attitudes, and choices. But right next to our gardens are other people's lives. Oh, uh, I've messed up. Now there's four (laughs) choices. Thank you. And this is the reality of our life. Just start again. No, listen, I don't want it to be bad for you. I want it to be a great drawing experience. I, uh, John actually t- uh, messaged me this week and said, hey, if you ever want like, screen graphics with all this stuff on, just <laughs> let me know. And I replied and just said, do you not like my drawing? All right, we're going to get this right now. You ready? Stop. All right, happy now? Good. See, because the reality is, is that what grows in here often comes into contact with other people's lives. Our feelings, our attitudes, our choices, they don't really just affect us. And so as we find both healthy fruit growing in our life, that's a goal, that's our aim. As we find healthy fruit, that impacts people in a positive way, right? 
the fact that our, that our feelings of love and affirmation and encouragement and our attitudes as we're postured, they are postured towards people to see them succeed and win. And, um, and our choices, when they're all lined up together, we produce fruit that really helps the people around us. It strengthens people. It encourages people. It puts smiles on people's faces. But the reality is, is that that isn't always the fruit that produce. And we know that often we can produce weeds and we can produce thorns and we can produce big trees that block out the sun and we can produce... This is where my drawing comes into play. See, oftentimes we find that the the product of our feelings, our attitudes, and our choices can be weed-like. John's looking now. He's thinking, I could have done this, and it would have looked way better than that. I challenge you on that, John. I think that looks amazing. But this is what I want to talk about today. I want to talk about conflict. I want to talk about how we manage conflict well. Uh, as some of you remember, I, I talked about the fact that in my, uh, in my street, private road, um, I managed to get everyone together and we had our, literally this last week, we had our road resurfaced. It happened, yep. But one of the amazing things about interacting with neighbors is you just start to hear the story, the history of neighborly love and also neighborly hatred. And all these stories come out and I wanted to tell you one of these just by way of of practically demonstrating the reality of how one person's life, the literal garden landscape of their life, when weeds grow and when bad things actually get grown as a result of either poor feelings, bad attitudes, or bad poor choices, that it impacts around. So I, I can tell you this story because both these neighbors no longer live on the street. So I, I'm, I'm confident that no one's going to A, hear this story. But anyway... B, no one's here. I did check everyone that came in that they weren't a previous neighbor of mine. But anyway, I was hearing this story alongside many other stories from my neighbors about general irritations. And most general irritations that happen between neighbors, like they dissipate and they go away unless they end up on Neighbors from Hell. How many of you have seen that program? How many of you live in that program? I may be speaking to some of you personally today, but and there's this one particular story where uh, a neighbor of mine described what um, the previous owner had had in terms of an ongoing relationship with their neighbor, the person that lived literally next door. And what would happen is this neighbor uh, had, uh, had cats, quite a number of cats, that would poo in, in, in the person's garden. But what the neighbor would do is, is she would scoop it up and she would just fling it over the fence. So this happened a couple of times, and uh, the, the, the other neighbor went around and said, hey, look, we don't have cats. I'm not sure if it's your cat that's coming in and pooing in my garden, but I've also been aware that I've often seen poo just flying across the fence. I'm not, that may well be your cat. I'm not sure. Um, but can, can, can this situation please stop? Anyway, the situation did not stop, and the poo continued to fly from garden to garden. And um, in a... In a um, in, in one way of dealing with this, the neighbor whose garden the poo was ending up in decided, I am going to store up all of this poo, and I'm going to deliver it to my neighbor at an opportune time. So literally, and this takes dedication, let me tell you, they said that the neighbor collected the cat poo for literally a year, kept it in a box in their shed for a year. Like, this takes dedication. This is one smelly shed with a box of cat poo stored up for a year. And then at Christmas time, which is obviously the season for generosity and gifts, the neighbor decided to take said poo, 
collected, kept in shed, and deposit it kindly on the doorstep of, of the other neighbor. Just by way of saying, look, this is obviously yours. You've obviously, you're obviously missing it. I found it routinely, collected it for you, and here you go. So that was one example of literally where one neighbor's garden came into contact with somebody else's garden, and the, the whole journey of conflict was not dealt with well. So that I did not propose that as a solution to anyone's problems here. But I do want to go after what does managing conflict well, and I want to be really practical. I want to pull out some verses as we go through. But this morning, I want to talk about honor. I want to talk about forgiveness. I want to talk about patience. I want to talk about dealing with our attitudes. I want to talk about peace. I want to talk about finding gold in other people. And I want to talk very practically towards the end. And where I want to zero most of our time this morning around is doing conflict well. I want to pull out some some scripture that I think Jesus um, um, really clearly and with a lot of clarity gives us a roadmap for dealing with conflict that I feel like is an important part of what we need to institute and implement in our lives. Is that all right? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the opportunity that we get to take your word and to practically apply it to our lives. That, God, you call us to be incredible witnesses uh, of who you are. We get to be a demonstration of just how good our Father is. That we get to demonstrate just how much, God, you love humanity. You love those people around us by the way in which we love them. So, Father, as we wrestle with this issue of conflict, as we consider how our lives, even historically, but moving forward, how they can be walking in a position of health as we engage with people through times when they may hurt us, let us down, they may wound us, but God, you call us to live in a different way, to respond to those things in a different way. And so we choose to let you, Holy Spirit, to come and shine the light on our hearts this morning, that you would challenge us and you change us, and that, Father, that by the end of this morning, we would, we'd be living more like you. Our lives would look more like you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. So I want to talk about honor to begin with, and we'll rattle through a number of these things quite quickly, just on the basis of time, but hopefully you're taking notes and you can figure this stuff out as you go along. For me, honor is a lot, if, you, if we take the garden analogy, it's a lot, for me, like a trellis. Honor is this, uh, this thing that we have in our lives that positions our lives to help plants or help things grow in a particular direction. It sets the parameters for where things grow. How many of you have trellises in your garden? So you know what they're there for. You know, if you didn't have a trellis, that ivy would just, would just grow on the floor. Or, in fact, it would just grow anywhere. But when you want ivy to grow in a particular way or a particular plant to grow in a particular direction, you pin it to a trellis. And in pinning this flower, pinning this fruit, this growth to a trellis, you dictate the way in which this uh, fruit grows. And that's, what, that's a lot like honor. Honor is the way that we position our hearts so that the, the growth of our life, whatever comes out of our life, gets to be challenged and pointed in the right direction. I want to say that honor, it's, it's not about ignoring somebody else's fault or weakness. You know, when we consider that when our, when our world comes into contact with somebody else's world, their feelings, their attitudes, and their choices, and when weeds grow into their life, honor is not about simply just ignoring those faults and those weaknesses. It's not pretending that they're not there. But it is looking for the gold in somebody else. 
so that we have the potential to honor them even when they are not honorable. It's the ability that we have to continue to value somebody separate from their poor behavior, separate from their feelings, their attitudes and choices towards us. That's what honor does. It's it's saying this, how can I dig through some of the the weeds that are growing towards me through bad attitudes or poor choices that are encroaching into my world? How can I navigate through those in order to dig beyond those, in order to find the gold of who you really are behind some of your bad feelings, attitudes, and choices? Does that make sense? That's what honor does. You know, remember with honor, it's not because... um, it's not, we, we don't honor people in front of us simply because they honor us or that it's somehow a response to somebody else's honorable behavior towards us. We honor people because this is who we are. Honor is not a response that we give to somebody in equal measure because of what we find them positioning towards us. We honor because of who we are. You know, I, I, I and we, you have the unique opportunity in all of your life to manage you. This is the thing. You, as we established um, when we talked a couple of weeks ago, what goes on in somebody else's world, what what goes on in, in the landscape of somebody else's life, is not yours to manage. The only place that you can manage is the landscape of your life. And so in being able to offer and walk in a place of honor with other people, you get to... You get to manage you. I'm clear in that sense that I'm clear of what I'm responsible for. I'm responsible for my feelings, my attitudes, and my choices. I can't blame anybody else's behavior from what grows um, from my feelings, my attitudes, and choices. But what that does is it empowers me to be able to, at times and in all seasons, honor the one in front of me no matter what their behavior is. And this is what honor does, is it, is it positions our heart and our life to, in such a way where we're saying, I, I cannot and I will not be manipulated into poor feelings, bad behavior, and poor choices simply because that's what I'm encountering from you. Does that make sense? Because I get to manage me. You get to manage you. So that's honor. What about forgiveness? This is a big one. We'll take a few minutes over this. You guys will probably be familiar with the story that, um, that Jesus told, the parable of the unmerciful servant. In fact, let me read it to you. It's in Matthew 18, verses 21 to 35. And Peter has come to Jesus and he's asked Jesus, how many times do I need to forgive? He's proposed a small number. Jesus says, no, no, no. It's actually, uh, I want you to forgive 77 times. And so Jesus then goes on to unpack this story. Verse 23 says this. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that they had be sold to repay the debt. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's masters took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. But when the servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins, much less than what he had owed. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servants fell to his knees and he begged him, be patient with me and I'll repay it back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and he had the man thrown into prison until he could pay back the debt. When the other servants 
saw what had happened. They were outraged and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I cancelled that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In his anger, in anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. There's a real biblical principle here, and and for the sake of time, again, we could spend a whole morning just looking at the issue of forgiveness. But I wanted to highlight it really as a tool to you in the whole area of confrontation, because there is so much around um, forgiveness that I believe enables us to never get to the point where actually confrontation ever needs to happen. But in essence, you know, what, what, what Jesus is helping us understand is that there is a biblical precedent for forgiveness. And it's not just a sense of, of um, it's understanding forgiveness in its, true, in its true sense. In that actually forgiveness is letting go of a debt. And this is what happens with us. People hurt us, people wound us, and we take offense and we take hold of a debt against that person. And we hold them to that debt. And we develop feelings around that debt. We, de- we develop attitudes around that debt. And ultimately, we begin to choose, because of our ownership of that debt against somebody else, we choose to make choices, probably at every moment we have, to separate ourselves or to inflict pain and hurt in retaliation. Because ultimately, every time, every moment that we hold on to the debt and we don't release forgiveness, we're trying to control somebody with our feelings, our attitudes, and our choices because of the way that they've treated us. But Jesus is so clear that we actually, in the same way that that God forgives us, we are called to demonstrate that forgiveness to other people. And it includes of letting go of the debt. Some of you this morning are carrying around hurt and pain because of things people have done to you. And it's been heavy and it's been weighted. And actually, the longer time goes on, the heavier that debt becomes to you. And the reality is unforgiveness only affects one person. And do you know who that is? It's you. Unforgiveness only hurts one person. As much as we think that holding on to that debt somehow inflicts some sort of punishment on the person that hurt us, the only person that unforgiveness impacts and hurts is you. And I want to say at this point that love defines our ability to forgive. Love really is the answer to most of what we'll talk about this morning. But love defines our ability to forgive. Letting go of a debt that somebody owes us because of their attitudes, because of their choices. Love says that debt is paid in the same way that it was love that motivated the father to send his son. When Jesus was sent, it was to pay for the debt of our sin. And it was love that was motivating the Father to give his one and only Son. And love can become our motivation. Love is one of the greatest fruits of our lives. If we want to have anything that nurtures and saturates the way in which our feelings, our attitudes, and our choices are defined, let it be love. This is what 1 Corinthians 13 says about love. Love is 
patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It's not proud. It does not dishonor others. It's not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. It has no room for unforgiveness. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, and always perseveres. Look at how many feelings and attitudes and choices love gets to define in those verses. Love is patient. That's a choice. We get our choices get to be defined by love. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. Think about all of those feelings and attitudes that love gets to define in our garden. It's amazing to think that actually part of our journey with God, who is love, is that he gets to define through us what the landscape of my life looks like and therefore what grows in the landscape of my life. And it's defined by love. To love someone so powerfully through positioning our hearts to forgive them is one of the greatest tools you will ever have in journeying through confrontation. Let me say that again. To love someone so powerfully through forgiveness is one of the greatest tools any one of us will have in this journey of dealing with conflict. I've seen so many people at times try to inflict punishment on somebody else by holding things against them. And I've said it already, but the unforgiveness, the only person it hurts is you. It's the most futile strategy in the world. Because all it ever does is hurt you. I love what Paul says in um, Ephesians 4 verse 32. He says this, be kind and compassionate to one another. Forgiving each other just as Christ, just as in Christ God forgave you. What that verse doesn't say, it doesn't say be reasonable with one another. It doesn't say be reasonable with one another. Reason would say I'm entitled to hold on to whatever I want because you've hurt me. Because of what you did, because of the way you spoke to me, because of your feelings, your attitudes and your choices towards me that have hurt me. Reason would tell me I can hold on to those things. But ultimately, Scripture tells us to engage our heart and our emotions. And in that process of, of forgiveness, our heart and our, our emotions, they get to overrule reason. That's why Paul tells us to be kind and compassionate, because he's saying engage your heart and engage your feelings. And allow them, through the truth of God's word, to override any sense of reasoning that would say, it's okay for me to hold on to this stuff. But in, in being compassionate and being kind, that we get to allow forgiveness to flow from our lives. And the other thing is, at the end of that verse, it said, just as in Christ God forgave you, there is a standard to forgiveness. There's a, there's a, there's a measure by which we can hold our lives up in the way that we treat other people, and that measure is how God treated us. Right? You know, the measure and standard forgiveness is not something where it's not a tick box. It's a person by the name of Jesus. And when we hold up the reality of Jesus and everything he laid down to make a way for our forgiveness, we understand that actually this, this journey of forgiveness that we get to go on with one another, it is about laying our lives down. It's, an, it's about not allowing reason to say, I am entitled to hold on to this debt. It's about letting kindness and compassion and love rule how we treat one another. 
I really believe that forgiveness as a story of love from my life to somebody else, forgiveness is actually part of my new nature. It's the way that as, as God's son and daughter that we get to demonstrate the fullness of, of who God really is. That he is so moved by love and compassion and kindness that he forgives. And this now becomes our nature. This is my new identity as a forgiving machine. That wherever I encounter pain and hurt and wherever I have the, the, the legal right to, own, to hold a debt against you, I get to move in kindness and compassion. And I get to extend forgiveness. Let me say these two things. Forgiveness is not forgetting the hurt that hurt happened. It is not pretending that hurt doesn't matter. It is not failing to confront wrong or hurtful behavior. But forgiveness is facing the wrong done to us recognizing the emotions inside, choosing not to hold on to the offense against another, and ultimately giving up our self-pity. How many of you recognize that? Actually, you've been on a journey of forgiveness in certain situations, but actually holding on to pity was your last sort of powerful thing that you felt like, I just can feel pitiful about myself in this situation. Hey, we don't, in in full forgiveness, in true forgiveness, we don't even get to own self-pity. We get to give that away. And entrust it to Jesus. What about the tool of patience? Colossians 3 verse 13 says this. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. I think it's interesting that Paul puts these two things together. Bear with one another and forgive one another. And I can't help feeling that the first part of that equation Bearing with one another is a huge key to us not actually ever getting to a place where forgiveness ever needs to happen. Does that make sense? That ultimately, if we were to, to truly walk in patience with one another, bearing with one another, that actually that, that tolerance level that we have, and again, it's not putting ourselves in harm's way, but that tolerance level for where we, where we are hurt or where we are offended or where we take offense, maybe that tolerance line can move a little bit further away from us so that actually we weren't constantly finding ourselves needing to forgive because we were operating out of a place of patience and bearing with one another. I just think we wouldn't be as a, walking around as offended with situations or people if actually we learned to walk in patience. And again, patience is a tool in conflict because it is a demonstration of love. What about dealing with attitudes? Um, I, I absolutely believe that, and this is probably my own reflection on my life, that um, I often feel things first. Well, I often think things first, right? And then the, the, the thought very quickly hits my feelings. And then often I find if I let those feelings um, kind of fester for a little while, those feelings tend to form attitudes, right? And then along the journey somewhere, those attitudes often result in the choices that I make towards a person or in a situation, right? It can be this bit of a cycle. And so I, I'm conscious that in the middle of that is, is where my attitudes find themselves. That actually I, something happens to me, it hits my feelings, and if I don't process it at that point, it begins to form an attitude, and then my attitudes cement the choices that I make in life. And so I'm like looking in the middle of that going, I need to fundamentally get hold of some of these attitudes that are in my heart. You know, when we form fixed attitudes towards people, they become judgments, right? Judgments of, of who people are because of their past, they become the judgments of how we deal with them on into the future, 
That's what a judgment is. It's a, it's a, it's a marked decision from an attitude I have to, to, to define you on the basis of how I found you in the past. This is what um, Jesus says very clearly about judging in Matthew 7 verses 1 and 2. It says this, do not judge or you too will be judged. There's a lot to unpack there. It's not very clear, is it? For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Wow. Effectively, what Jesus is saying is, is that in this, in this um, landscape of our, of our attitudes and what grows here is the potential for us to, to develop judgments. Now, outside of the context that Jesus just says, don't judge, so in, in, in essence, wherever we find our attitudes forming judgments, that's got to be a place where we start to do some really aggressive weeding, to come back to our gardening analogy, really aggressive weeding. But more than that, there's a challenge in there to say that ultimately these ju- the judgment of our life towards people, it actually becomes a barometer, becomes a thermostat to, to really what we invoke by way of judgment towards ourselves. So, you know, if it wasn't good enough that Jesus was just saying, just don't do it, there is a reality here that we need to be very, very careful with wherever in our hearts attitudes are forming judgments because it creates a mirror-like environment whereby we invite judgment on ourselves. It's a challenge of scripture. Take it on board and think about it this week. <laughs> what about finding gold? What about finding gold? I think that finding gold is a great, much like honor, finding gold is, is a great strategy in how we deal with conflict. Philippians 4 verse 8 says this, Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about those things. I love the, get, the fact that we get to, that we, almost this becomes a set of glasses that we get to put on. As we deal with people that have, have hurt us or we deal with situations that are challenging, we get to place a, a set of lenses across our eyes that allow us to go after and see what is noble, right, pure, lovely, admirable. Anything that is excellent, I'm going to see it. Even in an environment where there is challenge, even when there is, I'm in an environment where the weeds of your life are encroaching and growing all over my life, I get to place the lens over my eyes that say, I'm going to look for, I'm going to move past, I'm going to honor you to such a degree that I can see beyond all of that stuff. Finding gold is so important because what it, what it tells me is I still have a choice this is what I often think that we feel when the weeds of other people's feelings, attitudes, and choices begin to, begin to encroach into our world. When somebody else's world crashes into my world, it can be so demonstrative, it can be so painful that I think that I have no more choices. And the reality is I still get to feel things, I still get to have attitudes, and I still get to choose And I love the fact that my choice gets to be filtered through what is noble, what is right, what is pure, what is lovely, what is admirable. I still get to choose. Even in pain, I still get to choose. Even in being wounded, I am still empowered to choose how I love you. It's our choice. What about peace? 
I think peace is a strategy in conflict because peace remains in our garden. Romans 12, 18 says this, if it's possible, as far as it depends on you, in other words, whatever's in your garden, live at peace with everyone. Again, this just becomes a a way, a a, a positioning of our feelings and our attitudes that says, I am going to tend the garden of my life in such a way that no matter what encroaches in from you, I'm going to try and live at peace with you. I get to play my part. I get to be responsible for what's in my boundary lines. Not responsible for what's in your boundary lines, but I get to be responsible for creating peace. And peace might look like a very clear strategy of how we love. Because again, peace is that demonstration of love. For the last few minutes that we've, we've got together this morning, I want to run through very practically this final point I have. And I've wanted to be practical this morning. And this is about to get super practical. But I want to talk to you about doing conflict well. So if we consider that everything I've just talked about would be things that we could put in our toolkit that we could pull out when we find ourselves in a place where someone's hurt us, wounded us, or where just the reality of somebody else's life comes crashing into my life. That if these things are tools, I think there is a roadmap to help us with conflict. Let me read Matthew chapter 18, verse 15 to you. It says this, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. Between you and him alone, if he listens to you, You've gained your brother. Let me read it one more time. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. This process needs to be the one and only way in which we respond to conflict in our lives. The problem is, I think, when I look around, and in particular, I, I, I feel like the church, like with many things, is kind of like a greenhouse for stuff, like stuff grows intensely and passionately and fast and very quickly. And so I feel like in the church and in family, this issue of conflict is so important because stuff grows so quickly and so fast. And before we realize it, we've got weeds out of control everywhere. Maybe that's another church, probably not our church, right? We're all right. Um, but this is, I believe this, is, this biblical roadmap for conflict is something I want to go through with you. I want to practically talk it through. Jesus commands us to look at conflict in this manner. And I will now put it into my own words. If there is conflict, you go to the person in private and discuss the problem for the purpose of reconciliation. Did you all get that? I'm sure you're all writing this down. I can see you fervently, right? Or just take a picture. It's up there. You go to the person in private and discuss the problem for the purpose of reconciliation. This is your roadmap to, to, to conflict resolution, okay? And if I, we're not really good at telling you what to do, but if I can tell you what to do right now as, as a leader in this community, this is our roadmap for conflict, okay? Nothing outside of that really, I think, is a safe bounds for conflict. It's right here. Okay, so I want to go through with it um, as quickly as I can. First of all, there's a journey of just acknowledging conflict if there if there is conflict. Okay, if there is conflict, you know, ignoring conflict doesn't make it go away. In the same way that I said that time is not a great healer, it's not. 
Conflict does not dissipate and go away with time. Some of you, maybe even in this room, have got significant relational breakdown um, to the point of even losing connection with people over time. And it's not simply, it's not good enough simply to say, oh, well, they've changed and I've changed and we've kind of just drifted apart. If ultimately the starting point of you drifting apart was a point of conflict, then actually time and dissipating and distance is not the solution. Most of us acknowledging that there is a conflict actually isn't the challenge because for often um, these weeds and these, the, the growth of conflict comes into our world and it, and it affects how we feel, it affects our attitudes, and more often than not, it affects the choices of how we relate to one another. The second step is this. I must own responsibility. The second instruction is you. So if there is conflict, you. Jesus is calling us to take responsibility in this whole journey of reconciliation. You know, despite any thoughts of, it's not fair, it wasn't my fault, they need to apologize first, in the light of any of those thoughts, the onus is on you. You know, anger will always bring with it a self-righteousness. But what Jesus calls us to do in this roadmap is to take our own responsibility. Not for the wrongs that have been done towards us, but we get to take the, take the responsibility for the opportunity to right those wrongs. Isn't that amazing? That We don't get to have to take responsibility for the wrongs that have been done to us, but we get to partner with the responsibility to right those wrongs. That's in our garden. That's in our responsibility. And you and I are, are responsible to initiate reconciliation. And I love that because the more we take ownership from that from two parties, the more we take steps towards one another, right? The more we own that together, the more, the, the more closely and intentionally we will take responsibility. So next, if there is conflict, you go This step is about being active, not passive. Conflict is never, ever healed through passive aggressiveness, right? It's gutting, really, because it's the easiest way, but it just does not work. Passive aggressive does not work. To pursue healthy conflict and to pursue reconciliation, it is an active thing, not a passive thing. You know, if we understood um, what happens if we don't go... We understand that in not going, we simply create a greater void of time and therefore a greater opportunity for disconnect. I think we would realize that the intentionality of going is something that we should move on pretty quickly. And the reason why I think that is this, that often offense comes to me, somebody's weeds start encroaching in my life, their stuff, their attitudes, feelings, and choices, it crashes into my world, and I get this thought, and then, and then the longer I leave it, that thought disseminates down to my feelings, and my feelings and my emotions are a terrible place to process things, especially hurt, and as my feelings and emotions take hold of that stuff, I form attitudes, and then, like we said, we begin to, our choices begin to be defined by the hurt and the pain and the affliction of somebody else's choices towards us. So we go. Avoidance absolutely kills community. Avoidance causes resentment. It causes little things to fester and become big things. How many of you realize that? That, that, that 
I find this with my kids. Um, Abby's here, so I won't talk about her. But, um, you know, one of my other kids, maybe. Um, you know, the, the scale of something tiny that might have happened in the playground and how that, when, it, when I get to hear the story at the end of the day, has become the most defining thing for the whole of the day. That we've fallen out and we will never, ever play together again. Like it was one little thing. And how many of you have realized that in, in life, those one little seeds of offense, just like weeds, if we leave time and we don't go, we just allow time for things to fester and to grow. The next step, if there is conflict, you go to the person. Now listen, often the last person we want to go to is the person that's offended us, hurted us, hurt us, or the person whose world is crashing into our world. You might think, surely a third party is helpful at this point. Just for me to straighten out my thoughts. No, get your thoughts straight between you and the Lord. A third party is not going to help you. No third parties. No getting your thoughts straight. No telling other people for their prayerful consideration. All right? It's called gossip and it's horrible. And listen, go to the person. Go to the person. Listen, if you find yourself in the room as somebody who gravitates towards you as a third party, somebody who's like, oh, you know, they, they, I feel like they're a safe person for me to go share all of my rubbish with. If you find people gravitating towards you, like, stop it. Like, don't allow it. Point people back to where the issue lies. Does that make sense? Yes or no? I'm not moving on if you don't get it. <laughs> Like, go to the person, and if you find yourself being a person that someone just circles around telling you all their stuff and all the issues they've got with somebody else, just point them in the right direction. Because we go to the person. And the next step is, if there is conflict, you go to the person in private. You know, sensitivity in conflict resolution is so important. First thing that we naturally want to do when we've been hurt or when somebody has impacted us is just tell everyone about it because we're hurting. But the reality is, is the, the biblical precedent for confrontation and healthy confrontation is that we go to the person in private. The next step, if there is conflict, you go to the person in private and discuss the problem. It sounds stupid to say, but clear, concise communication is so important. You know, when we encounter direct one-on-one conflict with someone, either one of these two things, in my experience, happens. Firstly, we can either, we try addressing the issue indirectly to try and soften the blow of confrontation. And so we end up circling or skirting around the issue. And all it ever does is breeds confusion, not clarity. Does that make sense? Like we've got some issue with somebody and something we do need to sort out. But in, in, a, in, in a way that we don't want to have too hard a confrontation or we don't, we, don't, where we don't want to, you know, we don't really want to hurt them. We circle around the issue and we don't bring clarity. Well, the second thing that happens is that we get nervous and we get vague. You know, and what we end up saying is things like, well, you kind of make me feel like this sometimes, maybe. I don't know. What do you think? Like that kind of vague correspondence, that vague kind of communication, it just does not breed clarity. It just doesn't help. Direct communication is this. When you did this, it made me feel like this. 
right? That, that's, that, that's a starting point for a conversation. Listen, when you did this, let me help you understand your behavior, your weeds, your feelings, your attitudes, your choices. When you did it, when it encroached, when your world crashed into my world, when you did this, it made me feel like this. And it just gives an opportunity for open, clear, concise communication. And finally, because clarity is so important, because the aim of all this journey, the aim of where we're heading towards is reconciliation. If there is conflict, you go to the person in private and discuss the problem for the purpose of reconciliation. The goal in conflict is never to score points. It is never to win We engage in a journey of of conflict resolution with people because we want to be reconciled with them. There is something in, in perhaps in their feelings, attitudes and choices towards you that is causing a disconnect. And the beauty of what we get to offer in the midst of all of that, given all the tools that I've described today, is that we get to pursue the beauty of reconciliation. Listen, if we're out to win, we're out to fail. We will end up causing more distance, more separation, more pain than ever needed to be the case. But with a heart of reconciliation, we get to take part in the beauty of seeing relationship restored. Conflict always, and I'll finish with this, conflict always brings people to a crossroads. Either forgiveness and repentance and restoration or further breakdown. Listen, this is just the reality of conflict. Jesus always wants us to walk the way of love and to walk that road of forgiveness and repentance and reconciliation. But because we're human and because hurts and anger often cut deep and often we feel um, incredibly challenged, there are opportunities, there are times when we find that reconciliation just doesn't happen. But let me say this. If we find that reconciliation doesn't happen and we haven't gone through this roadmap, then actually I would encourage you to go right back to the beginning and start again. Like Jesus was so committed to your life and my life. He was, God the Father was so committed to connection with us that he was willing to lay his life down. Let me say this, I, I feel so passionate about this whole issue of healthy confrontation. And there's so much more that we could say and so much more I would love to encourage you with. But it's so prevalent here because out there, I just don't see a healthy model for, for, for conflict resolution. But what I'm really worried about is often I don't see it in here either. And we should be the very ones who, because of the God who we reflect, the God of restoration, the God of reconciliation, the God of forgiveness, it should be the very mark of the lives of his children, of you and I. And so in bringing all this, in bringing some, hopefully some helpful tools, in in hopefully bringing something that can form part of a roadmap for you, I humbly say, let's go at this as a community. Listen, I know that there are people in this room that that have issue with even the organization of the church. Decisions that Sarah and I make. If you're not prepared for you to go to me in person and with clarity to talk about the problems you have with the purpose of reconciliation, then I want to challenge you to come and book an appointment with me and get some time with me. My door is always open to talk to you. 
Listen, it's that serious. But more than that, as you look around this room, as you look around maybe of, of people that you now don't sit near, or there are things that you've just left, tiny little things that happened many years ago that you've just left, I would encourage you with sensitivity and with, with peace and with honor and with forgiveness in your heart, work towards and move towards one another. Now is the time not for us to be disconnected and to be separate, but to reflect the very heart of the Father for his family in that we would be brothers and sisters walking together. Would you stand? I want to pray for you. Obviously, there's some things in what I've shared um, this morning that I would love for you to take on board um, and to outwork practically. This is not something I hope that would just tickle your mind, but it would impact the landscape of your heart to such a degree that things begin to shift and change for you. So, um, so why don't we pray? If you want to hold your hands out, I'm just going to invite Holy Spirit to come and to meet each one of us wherever we're at. Father, I thank you that, um, that Holy Spirit, you're present here with us. Holy Spirit, I thank you that you always lead us into righteousness. And so, Holy Spirit, this morning, we just take you by the hand and say we want to go on a journey of righteousness that would see us walk in real health in this area. Father, I thank you that as a community, you've marked us out both to one another, but also to this city. You've marked us out as people that would reflect who you are, that we would know and demonstrate and walk out you and your nature in how we deal with one another. So this morning we just partner with you, Holy Spirit. We say, would you come and and search our own hearts? Would you illuminate those things in our lives that we need to deal with? Would you give us grace in this season to go again and love one another extravagantly? Father, my prayer really is this. And and for for Sarah and I, we want to to lead a healthy family. And so I, I ask God that you would, um, you would convict where you need to bring conviction. You'd bring challenge where you need to bring challenge. But also, Father, I pray for new grace over our conversations. I pray that even those that, are, that have lists written down in their books or notebooks that, of things that they've got issue with. Lord, I pray that those things would be opened up and new conversations and new relationships would be formed and healing and wholeness would flow throughout our whole church family. God, I'm so committed in leading this community forward that we're all going together and that no one gets left behind. And so any assignment of the enemy to keep us separate and disconnected because of unforgiveness, God, we say, would you have your way? Would grace abound? And would our lives reflect the goodness and the grace and the mercy of our Father? In Jesus' name. Amen.